Well, friends, if there is anything we have learned so far in our series in the book of Judges, it is that God is in the business of using unlikely characters to do unimaginable things for his glory. Uh, As I mentioned in my prayer a moment ago, today we're moving into the story of Gideon, the sixth judge found in the book of Judges. And, you know, when we think about the judges we've seen so far in our series, uh, these judges, remember, are deliverers. They're, They're heroes, warriors who God raised up to save his people from their oppressors. And uh, as we think about these various judges that God has used, you know, really only one of them has fit the mold of what we would expect in terms of our, our worldly understanding of what a deliverer should look like, right? We, we saw the very first judge in our series was Othniel, and he alone was like the prototype of what we think a judge should be, right? He was a faithful man of God. He was from, you know, a family of faith. He had proven himself before as a warrior. And so, like, when you think about a judge, you think, well, yeah, Othniel, that's, that's the kind of guy God's going to use, right? But interestingly, as we've gone on in our series, we see that God brings these unlikely characters into the picture, unlikely heroes that would, would not fit the mold of our worldly standards of what we would think a deliverer should be. Right, we we saw the the second judge in our series, Ehud, the one-armed warrior. Right, like you know, who would think that here's this guy with with a, you know potentially a disability that God would use to deliver His people? And yet we saw that we saw then God raised up Shamgar, you know, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. He was from a, a compromised family, a family that had embraced pagan gods, and yet God used Shamgar to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And then last week, we saw God raised up a woman, Deborah. I mean, who would have thought that God would have used a a woman to to lead his people? But even Deborah, right? Here's the judge who who wasn't a general. She she didn't fit the mold. And and so God then brought Barak alongside of Deborah. And we saw last week, you know, timid Barak. He, he, you know, doubted. He had questions. He didn't really, wasn't sure if he was the guy. And yet God took Barak and used him to be Israel's general, but Barak wouldn't become the judge. And so interestingly, again, throughout our series, we see these heroes that don't necessarily fit the mold, and yet God is in the business of taking unlikely candidates, using them for unimaginable things to accomplish his purposes for his honor and his glory. And, you know, we're going to see that once again today as we turn to our sixth judge, this man by the name of Gideon. Gideon is one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible. And uh, we're going to look over the next three weeks, the next three chapters at Gideon's story. And and there's a lot of powerful lessons in Gideon's story. But but what we're going to discover as we study Gideon over the next three weeks is that Gideon might be the, the subject of the story, but God is really the star of the story. See, see, God uses Gideon, and, and yes, this is Gideon's story, but really what we're going to discover is that it's more a revelation about who God is and what we can learn about who our great God is. And, and so we're going to start this morning looking at Judges chapter 6, Verses 1 through 40. It's a bigger section of scripture. We're going to read it all. It's important that we read God's word. God's word is more important than anything I have to say. So we're going to read verses 1 through 40 this morning. And then I'm going to come back and I want to share some highlights from four scenes that we find in our story. 
four scenes that reveal to us the nature, character, will of God, as well as some significant lessons that we can apply to our own lives today. So we're in Judges chapter 6, 1 through 40. Now remember, last week, Deborah and Barak, the end of chapter 5, chapter 5 concludes with these words, and the land had rest for 40 years. So God used Deborah and Barak to to rescue Israel from the uh, evil king Jabin and his wicked general Sisera, and Israel had rest for 40 years. But when that period of rest came to an end, we find this cycle of rebellion that we've seen throughout the book book of Judges pick up once again, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel, excuse me, the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall, fear, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. The terebinth is like a pecan tree. Sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And so he did. 
Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. It's an interesting story, isn't it? In fact, as we're going to see today and over the next couple of weeks, Gideon's one of the most fascinating stories in all of Scripture. And, and there's a lot we can learn from Gideon. And we certainly will, but as I mentioned earlier, Gideon's story is really a story about Gideon's God, about our God, and how God worked through Gideon, an unlikely hero, to bring deliverance to God's people, the nation of Israel. 
Our, our passage this morning really breaks down into four scenes. And we're going to look at each of these four scenes. And in these four scenes, we learn a number of powerful lessons about God, about his nature, about his character, about his will for our lives. So, so I want to bring out some observations from these four scenes and, and then share some of these important lessons with us this morning. Scene number one, verses one through ten, God reveals himself in a prophet for the prodigals. God reveals himself in a prophet for the prodigals. Our, our passage opens, verses one through ten, providing some context for us on what was taking place in the time of Gideon. As we read at the end of chapter 5, Israel has just come out of 40 years of peace, having been delivered by Deborah and Barak. But once again, after this 40-year period of peace ends, we find in verse 1 that Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is now the fourth cycle of rebellion that we've seen take place in the book of Judges. Israel has been blessed by God. They've been delivered by God. And yet, once again, we see them falling back into sin. Friends, if we learn anything from the book of Judges, it's the reality of of the boring and expected nature of sin. I mean, there's nothing interesting or exciting about rebellion against God. In fact, it's very boring and predictable. You show me a person today who's living in rebellion against God, and I'll tell you how that story's going to end. It's going to end in heartbreak, in disappointment, in pain, in misery. It's the same case. There's, there's nothing new, there's nothing exciting, there's nothing special and enticing about straying from God's will. It always ends the same. And we see that once again, Israel has fallen into this cycle of rebellion. And this cycle of rebellion here in our opening verses highlights the fact that that Israel's rebellion has once again brought them into a period of oppression, but this is really the worst oppression that Israel has yet experienced. God gave his people into the hand of the Midianites. I want to put a map up on the screen for you this morning just to show you some context of where we are. Here's the Middle East, and, and there you see the Sinai Peninsula down in the center there. And Midian, the land of Midian, is what is in present-day Saudi Arabia. And so the Midianites were the ancestors of the modern-day Arab peoples. And they would come from the desert lands of Arabia up into the land of Israel. You see there the Dead Sea at the top of your screen in the, up on the top right. They would follow the waterways up through the deserts towards the Dead Sea. Then they would follow the River Jordan north of the Dead Sea up until the heartland of Israel to the fertile Jezreel Valley, which we talked about last week. That's where, that's where Deborah and Barak fought Jabin and Sisera. The fertile Jezreel Valley, the breadbasket of Israel, and the Midianites would come like locusts and just wipe it clean every year. Every harvest season, their camels and their people would come and they would encamp outside of Israel and they would come in and raid and plunder and steal all the produce, all the livestock, everything. It was so horrible that we read in the opening verses that the people of Israel literally made caves and dwellings up in the mountains where they would hide from these Midianite raiders and their oppression. Imagine that cycle every year. For seven years, this was taking place. 
Every year you plant, every year you work, every year you, you harvest your crop, and then these raiders come and steal everything from you. This is what was taking place during the days of Gideon. And we read again how the people of Israel cried out to the Lord in the midst of this oppression. Now, typically, at this point in our story of the book of Judges, we would expect God to send a deliverer to his people, a judge to rescue them from their oppressors. But that's not the case this time. We read here in verses 1 through 10 that this time, instead of sending a deliverer, God sends a prophet, an unnamed prophet. And this prophet's message to Israel is twofold. The prophet first reminds Israel of God's faithfulness. The prophet speaking on behalf of God says, do you not remember what I've done for you? I delivered you out of slavery. I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land. I drove out the people before you. But then secondly, the prophet ends in verse 10, but you were not faithful. You were not faithful. The prophet reminds the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them, him, to them and their unfaithfulness to him. Now, why this message? What's God trying to communicate to his people here through this prophet? Well, friends, understand the reason God sends this prophet here is because God is seeking to bring conviction upon his people. He's trying to get them to recognize the nature of their sickness, of their depravity, of their rebellion against him. He's trying to produce heart change in his people, trying to move them from, from a place of just simple regret over the consequences of their sins to a place of genuine repentance where they, where they turn from their sins. See, the reality is a lot of times when, when we sin, when we rebel against God, we inevitably f experience the fruit or the consequences of that. And Israel had felt the consequences of their rebellion, and they cried out to the Lord. But their cry was really not a cry of repentance. It wasn't about them in their heart recognizing how they had sinned against God. Their cry was simply a cry of remorse over where their sin had led them. They, they didn't like the consequences. But they hadn't yet understood the reason for the consequences. It's just like the Apostle Paul communicates in the New Testament when he writes to the church in Corinth. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says there's, there's two kinds of grief here. There's worldly grief, which is just purely remorse over the consequences of your sin. But, but just having remorse doesn't save you. Remorse alone won't save you because you need something more than remorse. You need a godly grief, which leads to repentance. And repentance is a 180-degree heart change. It's turning away from your sin to pursue God. And so that's what God's trying to get at here through this message of this prophet. And, and we see here what is really the first lesson in our passage this morning. Lesson number one, God is holy 
And he expects his people to pursue holiness as well. That's what the message of this prophet is all about. It goes back to what God had told his people when they were wandering through the wilderness, coming to the promised land, when God made his covenant with his people. In the book of Leviticus, God says to his people, Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The word holy, friends, means set apart or distinct. God is holy. He's the the holy of holies. He is totally righteous and pure and perfect. But he says to his people, I expect you to be holy too. You are going to live in this world, but you are not to be of the world. You are to be set apart. You are to be a, a lighthouse shining brightly the reality of what living with me and for me looks like to a dark and pagan world. And so God calls his people to be holy. And this is the reason why sin is so serious, friends. Our rebellion against God is really an affront against his holy nature. When we sin against God, we're basically saying to God, you know what, I don't care about your holiness. I'm going to go my way and do my thing in spite of what you are and what you have called me to be. And so as we see in Passages like 2 Corinthians 7, as we've seen throughout our series in the book of Judges, when we say that to God and we turn our back on him and his holiness, we discover that sin always leads to loss and to grief and ultimately to death. It's the same pattern over and over again. And so this is why God confronts Israel over their sin through the message of this prophet It's because in his love for his people, he desires to see genuine repentance in their lives. He's trying to get them to change their hearts, to turn away from the false idols in pursuit of fidelity to him. And I'll tell you something, friends. God will confront us in the very same way and for the very same reason. When we read God's word and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the power of God's word and brings conviction upon our heart, friends, that's not something to resist. That's something to embrace. It reminds me of recently a friend of mine here at church after one of our services stopped me out in the foyer and and after hearing the message that morning, he said to me, he said, Pastor Jason, man, that one sure stung a bit. And what he was getting at was the Holy Spirit had spoken to him. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God had brought conviction on his life. And it stung. And friends, when the Word stings, don't resist the sting, embrace the sting. Because the sting is the Holy Spirit trying to speak to you and encourage you to repent, to turn from your sin, and to turn back to God in faithfulness. Now, the second scene we see in our passage today is found in verses 11 through 24. And here, God reveals, he reveals himself in a summons for a skeptic. Here we see God's amazing grace. Notice, friends, there's no evidence of repentance, is there, in the nation of Israel in our passage? 
We, we go from verse 10 and, and, and the message of this prophet to verse 11, and, and it's right away we're introduced to Gideon. But there's no acknowledgement that God's people heard the message of the prophet. There's no acknowledgement that they truly repented. And yet, God's already in the process of raising up a deliverer. If that's not amazing grace, I don't know what is. Once again, the people of Israel didn't deserve God's deliverance. But he's already working to bring about their deliverance. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.8 in regards to our own sin. Paul says, but God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't have any merit to, to you know, deserve God's favor, but God in his amazing grace brought a deliverer. And this is what we see here in God raising up Gideon. Verse 11, we have our first introduction to Gideon, the hero of our story. But when we first meet Gideon, he appears anything but heroic. I mean, he's hardly an example of someone you'd think God would use to deliver his people from the horde of Midianite raiders. I mean, where is Gideon when we find him, right, here in verse 11? Where's Gideon? He's threshing wheat, hiding out in a wine press. What, what's a wine press? A wine press is a hole in the ground. It, it was about a four or five foot deep hole and they would pour all the grapes into the wine press and then they would stamp them down or they would roll a big rock over them to smash the grapes and, and get the grape juice out of them. But Gideon's not using the wine press to make wine. He's in the wine press threshing wheat. He's in there with his pitchfork and he's throwing the wheat up in the air, which is really, if you think about it, like an absurd task because a wine press is really like five, six feet in diameter and he's trying to thresh wheat, something you normally would do up on the hilltops. But here he is hiding in the wine press because he's afraid of the Midianite raiders out there that they're going to see him and come and steal all of his stuff. I mean, this is hardly the picture of bravery that we would expect in a judge, a deliverer of Israel. But once again, we find, as we talked about earlier, God is in the business of using unlikely people to do unimaginable things for the sake of his glory. And so the angel of the Lord comes and appears to Gideon. Now remember, friends, back in chapter 2, we saw the angel of the Lord. And remember, who do we say the angel of the Lord was? The angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate vision of the Son of God. This was Jesus that was appearing to Gideon. When we read the angel of the Lord, I want you to think Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus to Gideon. And notice what the angel of the Lord does with Gideon when he first appears. The angel of the Lord immediately speaks God's will into Gideon's life. Defining him not by who he is, but by who God intends him to be. Take a look at verse 12 in our passage this morning. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Friends, Gideon's hiding in a wine press. And yet God says, You're a mighty man of valor. And I think there's a great reminder for us here this morning. See, understand this today, friends. When God calls you, this is great. When God calls you, you are no longer defined by who you think you are 
or who the world says you are or by your past or your present circumstances or your present trials or challenges. You are defined by who God declares you to be. Isn't that great? It's God who defines us. And so God here in verse 12 defines Gideon, oh mighty man of valor, but we see Gideon still needs some encouragement to become the man God intends him to be. And here's where we find our second lesson this morning. Lesson number two, God is patient in our weakness and provides for us in our frailties. I love the exchange that takes place between Gideon and the angel of the Lord here in verses 12 through 23. And the reason I love this exchange is because I think all of us can relate to it. Not, not only seeing ourselves in Gideon, but also appreciating the way in which God patiently ministers to us in our weakness. Right? Take a look at your Bibles. Let's look at this exchange. The, the angel of the Lord has just declared to Gideon, the Lord is with you, literally, right? The Lord is literally with Gideon. But notice Gideon's response in verse 13. What's Gideon's first response? Skepticism. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Well, wait, if the Lord is with us, why, why has all this bad stuff happened to us? Why are the Midianites raiding us and plundering us? Right? Right? Like, is God really with us? And what's the Lord's response to Gideon? The Lord essentially says to Gideon, walk by faith and remember my promises. And then Gideon moves immediately from skepticism to starting to make excuses, right? Again, how often do we do the same things, right? Skepticism, excuses. The, the Lord reminds Gideon of, of his call and, and his promises, and now Gideon starts saying, well, Lord, I, I mean, I'm from like a small clan. You know, my, my, my people are not that great. My, my family's not that strong. I mean, you, you want to use me, God? And the Lord says to Gideon, trust in my presence. I am with you. And then Gideon moves from skepticism and excuses into doubt. Verse 17. Well, wait a minute. How, how do I know this is really you, Lord? Right? I mean, like, you know, how do I really know this is God speaking to me? Maybe if you just do a sign, you know, perform a sign. And so Gideon goes and he brings his offering to the Lord. He brings out some food to the Lord. And what does the Lord say to Gideon in the midst of his doubt? The Lord says, experience my power. And he touches the offering with his staff and it burns up right in his midst. And now, now Gideon moves from skepticism and excuses and doubt to fear. Now he's afraid because he knows I've been in the presence of God. And now maybe I've ticked God off with all of my doubts and excuses and skepticism. And so now he's afraid. And what does the Lord say to Gideon at the end of this second scene, verse 23? The Lord says, Gideon, know my peace. Know my peace. Friends, isn't that awesome? Not once does God chastise Gideon in his weakness. But instead, God lovingly reminds him of his promises, his presence, his power, and his peace. And I'll tell you something this morning, friends. You might be here today and you might be thinking to yourself, man, I can sure relate to this. 
I can sure relate to Gideon. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online today and God has been calling you to trust in him as your Savior and Lord, but you've been doubting his reality. Or maybe God's placed his call on your life and you've been making all kinds of excuses for why you can't obey. Or maybe God's been challenging you to take a step of faith and service to him and you've been resisting, questioning your abilities. I, I, I know you're calling me God, but I don't know that I can really do this. Friends, I want you to know if you can relate to any of that this morning, just as God said to Gideon, he says to you, remember my promises, trust in my presence, experience my power, and know my peace. Friends, I will tell you something. God is still in the business today of turning the weak need into warriors. And if you will trust him and look to him and believe in him, he can use you in incredible ways to do amazing things for his kingdom but we got to put our trust in him. And this leads me to our third scene this morning. God next in verses 25 through 32 reveals himself in a commission for the compromised. So, so God has just buoyed Gideon's faith here. And at this point, we'd expect to read how Gideon then goes and delivers Israel from their oppressors. But, but that's not quite what happens yet, is it, right? Before God uses Gideon to rescue Israel, he's going to let Gideon know that he needs to get his own house in order first, right? Gideon's own family was compromised. We, we see here in verses 25 through 32, the Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, you know what? Your dad has an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole, the, the two Canaanite fertility gods that were the major stumbling blocks for the nation of Israel. You guys got an altar in your own backyard. <laughs> now, Gideon, before you can deliver Israel, you got to go clean out your own yard. And so the Lord says to Gideon, I want you to take two bowls, and I want you to go and I want you to tear down that altar. Now, friends, that was no small thing to do. Archaeologists have found altars to Baal in the Middle East. They're typically 25 square feet, four feet tall, made out of stone. You can understand why he needed two oxen and 10 other men to help him. I mean, this was a massive structure, literally in his own backyard, that God was asking him to tear down before he could use him to become Israel's deliverer. Gideon's own family was compromised. Like, like many others in the nation of Israel, they had bought into this idea that they can serve Yahweh, but they can still benefit from the gods of Canaan. But Gideon is faithful to God, and he goes and he, he tears down this altar. Now again, there's an important lesson for us here in God's command to Gideon. Lesson number three this morning, God is a jealous God who will not share your heart with idols. Friends, understand that. God is a jealous God. He's not looking to share the throne of your heart with idols. In fact, in Exodus 34, when God is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness towards the promised land, he says to Moses and the Israelites, you shall tear down all their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, 
for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Friends, God will not tolerate idolatry in our lives. He will not share the throne of our hearts with idols. And I want you to understand something this morning. When we talk about deliverance, when we talk about renewal, when we talk about great acts of reformation, whether personally or culturally or around the world, friends, understand this deliverance and renewal always starts by putting first things first. And that means honoring God as the top priority in our lives. Again, this is true for individuals, true for families, true for churches, true for nations. We've talked about this before in our series in recent weeks. You cannot expect God's blessing when your heart's devotion is compromised. And that's what Gideon's own family had done. That's what the nation of Israel had done. Well, well, you know what? The, the Canaanite fertility gods, I mean, they, they can help us, right? I mean, if we, just, if we just sacrifice to Baal and Asherah occasionally, like maybe they really will bring rain and help our crops grow fertile and make you know, great produce, right? And, and so we'll use them. But yes, we still worship Yahweh. He's still our God, right? I mean, it's obvious Gideon still knew who God was. He, when the angel of the Lord appears to him, the first thing he says is, well, what about all the stories you told about the, your deliverance from Egypt and your faithfulness, right? He knew the God of Israel, but they also had embraced the gods of the Canaanites. And friends, we're very prone to do the same things even today, right? We, we have one foot in the things of the world, and we have one foot in the things of God, and we kind of straddle the fence thinking, you know, we can have the best of both worlds, Right? Like I can pursue the, the things of the world and the pleasures of the world and the desires of the world and, and you know, I'll just kind of straddle this fence and I'll still keep one foot in the things of God and I'm not fully compromised. I'm just kind of sitting on the fence. But friends, remember, every single fence has an owner and Satan owns that fence. Satan owns the fence of compromise. And so like we see here with Gideon, God always begins the process of deliverance and renewal by admonishing his people to get their own house in order first. That's really important. You know, it's really easy for us to, to look at the, the sinners in our culture and all the wickedness and depravity we see in the world around us. And it's easy for us to point fingers at everybody else. But God says... It starts here. It's like we saw this past fall in the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 4, Peter reminds us, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment starts with us. Just like it started first with Gideon and his family. God says, examine your heart. Are you sharing your heart with idols this morning? Because here's the deal. I'm not going to sit on the throne of your heart and share that throne with idols. And it might be time for us to take a good long look at our own backyards and see if we've erected any false idols in our hearts. 
Maybe it's time for us to, to repent and turn back to God in faithfulness. It's like Jesus reminds his disciples in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things he's talking about? He's talking about blessing. He's talking about joy. He's talking about satisfaction. He's talking about the, the abundant life that God promises us when we pursue him in fidelity. That all comes when we seek him first. It's like this great quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once said, if we put first things first, we get second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second things. We put God first, we seek him and his priorities first, and then God pours out his blessings in our lives. That's not prosperity theology. That's not health, wealth, and happiness. Right? That, that's satisfaction. That's peace. That's security. That's a joy that is indescribable. Right? Those are the promised blessings that God offers us when we put him first. See number four in our passage this morning, verses 33 through 40. God reveals himself in a display for the doubting. So Gideon goes out and he tears down his family's idols. And yes, he does so at night, right? We see him, he's still wrestling with some fear, some doubt, some concerns. What are people going to think, right? If I, if I follow the Lord, I mean, what's this going to mean for my family and my neighbors? He does this at night, and, and it's, it's easy for us to look at that and critique Gideon for that. But friends, I, I want to tell you something. Faith is not obeying without fear. It's obeying despite fear. And we need to understand something this morning. When God calls you to step out in faith, it's okay to just start with a step. Okay? God's okay with a growing faith. Just take a step. Even if that obedience means you do it under the cover of night, initially. You start with a step. You walk by faith. As you walk by faith, God begins to increase your faith and grow your faith. And pretty soon, the deeds done at night become the displays done in the day. Just start with a step. Honor God in obedience. Take those steps. But Gideon is still unsure. He, he's still doubting. And he hasn't fully arrived yet. But here we find that God is faithful. God keeps his word. This is lesson number four this morning. God is faithful in, to his word, and he's gracious in our growth. We, we see this truth with Gideon at the end of our passage this morning. Look at how God keeps his promise to Gideon, verses 34 and 35. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. So the Holy Spirit literally comes upon Gideon, and Gideon sounds the trumpet, and the Aberazites were called out. By God, the Holy Spirit called the Aberazites to Gideon to follow him. And then all the people of Manasseh were called out. And then two were the, the, was, was the tribe of Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. The Holy Spirit begins to do this work of revival through Gideon and God's people building an army for Gideon to, to lead to lead his people in deliverance against their Midianite oppressors. God is moving. God's at work here, friends. 
God always keeps his word. He's turning Gideon into the mighty man of valor that he promised him earlier that he would be. But yet we still see Gideon wrestling with doubt and fear. That's what this fleece episode is all about in verses 36 through 40. Gideon's still not sure. God's raising him up. God's calling him. God's empowering him. But Gideon is still wrestling with fear. And again, God is gracious with Gideon. He performs these miracles to reassure Gideon, I am with you. And friends, I want you to recognize this morning, oftentimes when God is about to do some of his most significant work in our lives and through us, you better believe that's when the enemy is going to step up and start whispering into your ear, are you sure? Can you really trust do you really believe? That's when the doubts and the fears and the skepticisms will come in because the enemy's looking to shut you down and not let God use you. I, I can relate to Gideon here, right? I remember four years ago when, when the church called me to become the senior pastor. I'll tell you what, there was one other time in my life when I was that afraid and it was when I was thinking about asking my wife to, be, to marry me. Like that was a huge deal. Like following in the footsteps of Pastor Rick and leading this church. I mean, I was scared. And you can ask Pastor Rick, he'll tell you, we had a lot of conversations. Like, could I really do this? I had a lot of conversations with our elders. Like, you know, like, is God really calling me? But God was faithful, like he was faithful to Gideon. And he called me and he confirmed that call through the words of wise counsel and through the call of the church and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and God was faithful to me in the same way that he was faithful to Gideon. And friends, I want you to know what I discovered. Here's what I discovered. The answer to doubt and fear is not to run from God's calling on your life, but it's to run to the God who made that call. If God's calling you to something this morning, friends, to an act of faith, to an act of service, to do something for his kingdom, and the fear creeps in, and the doubts creep in, and the concerns creep in, don't run from God. Run to God. And just like Gideon, just like what I experienced, I promise you, God will meet you in that place. And he will empower you, and he will prove himself to you, and you will see him use you in incredible ways that you can't even begin to imagine for the sake of his kingdom. That's who our God is, friends. Now, I'm just scratching the surface here when it comes to Gideon. Lots of incredible lessons we can learn through this story. Again, not just about Gideon, really lessons about our God. And over the next two weeks, we're going to learn more about who our God is and his power, and his faithfulness, and his grace, and his calling on our lives. But friends, my hope and prayer is that as we look to God's word, you're encouraged, and that you're inspired, and that you too will trust in the Lord like Gideon, and believe that God can use you in some amazing ways, if you're willing to trust in him. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this powerful story of Gideon and all the lessons that we find in it, Lord. We pray, God, that we would take these lessons to heart, that we would trust in you, and that we too would experience your presence, your power, your peace, Lord, your empowerment through the Holy Spirit. 
And that when you call us to walk in faith or to step out in faith or to reach out to a non-believer in faith, that we can trust that you will be with us and you will empower us for that task and you will do incredible things through us, no matter how inadequate we might think we are. Because when you're beside us, Lord, you can do amazing things. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust that. Prove yourself faithful to us again as you have so many times before. And may we step out in faith boldly as your people this week. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning, friends. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you and have a great week, friends. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.